and welcome back to yet another week of Behind the Lens. I'm film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, Debbie Elias. And you can read my movie reviews and interviews, including the somewhat volatile review of Black Panther uh, at BehindTheLensOnline.net and in print and online in other publications in the U.S. and abroad 24-7. But every Monday, I am right here at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on Adrenaline Radio. To all of our regular listeners, welcome back. To our new listeners, welcome, welcome. Uh, hope you enjoy what you hear. I hope you enjoy the format of our show um, because we are behind the lens where we go behind the lens and below the line with the up-and-coming talent, talented veterans who make the movie, TV, and even music and a couple times a year stage productions that we all know, love, and sometimes not so much like. Um, but it's always interesting, especially when you have a film or a show and it has issues and it has problems and you get a chance to talk to the director to find out their mindset, to find out what they were thinking, what their intent may have been. A perfect example is a few weeks ago, Anton Troy was on talking about his show, Rusty Revolver, a new web series. Uh, it's uh, currently available digitally and he and the cast, and the producers are hitting all kinds of trade shows right now, comic trades, because they also released a graphic novel of Rusty Revolver. And it's very interesting because what they ended up with is not what they envisioned because two days of film was totally worthless. And they had to make do. And then in the editing, in the editing bay, um, they then put together what really is a knockout look for the film. So it's always interesting to find out these little behind-the-scenes tidbits of what went into the making of something. And today, two incredible guests. One who was supposed to be live today, Mark Pellington. Uh, you know him from Arlington Road, Mothman Pro uh, Prophecies, I Melt With You, Henry Poole is here, last year's The Last Word that starred Shirley MacLaine, and his new film, Nostalgia, with Bruce Dern, Ellen Burstyn, Amber Tamblin, Nick Offerman, Patton Oswalt, James LaGrosse, um, and um, John Ortiz. Amazing film we're going to talk about in, in a minute. But because Mark is also shooting a pilot in New York for a TV series. So he is actually on location in the city somewhere today. So because... He really wanted to do the show. We pre-recorded his interview on Thursday. And uh, it's a goodie. As always happens when Mark and I get together, it's very candid. It's very honest. And uh, I think you're really going to enjoy it. He will, however, be here in the future, live and in person. So I look forward to that. But as many of you on social media know, he's been promising, I'll do the show anytime. I want to do the show. Um, so... To accommodate his shooting schedule, this is what we're doing today. But we do have coming up momentarily live uh, a voice you know, an actor whose face you know, Jeffrey S.S. Johnson. Jeffrey is known to most as the voice of T-Mobile uh, commercials. He is, a, he is a wonderful voice actor. He is a staple in guest appearances and TV movies, uh, 
Terminator Genesis, Haunting of Cell Block 11, going back to the police procedurals like uh, Criminal Minds, CSI, Bones. One of my favorite performances of Jeffries, we got to go all the way back to 2004 when he played Terry Melcher in the TV movie of Helter Skelter. I'm very excited because Jeffrey has made the crossover from going in front of the camera to going behind the lens with his feature film directorial debut, Captain Black. I got to say, I love this character so much. The character of Captain Black, a.k.a. meek and mild-mannered restaurant manager Mike. It's fresh. It has many endearing elements to it. So this is going to be a new experience talking to Jeffrey about stepping behind the camera and directing himself in front of the camera, which is always interesting with directors when they make that leap and are directing themselves. Uh, So I'm looking forward to talking to him and Captain Black. uh, They were just launching it. It was screening in Washington, D.C. It's now part of the Hollywood Real Independent Film Festival and will have its West Coast premiere this Wednesday night, February 21st at 7 p.m., down at uh, L.A. Live at the Regal Cinemas uh, at the corner of Olympic and Georgia. So I can't recommend it highly enough. It is it is really a treat to see. It has some wonderful poignancy in it. But as I said, the character of Mike, a.k.a. Captain Black, is truly wonderful. So I can't wait to talk to Jeffrey about it. And similarly, you're going to love hearing, I hope you'll love hearing my conversation with Mark Pellington about nostalgia. Nostalgia, it is, it's very meditative, it's insightful, it's contemplative, it's a rumination on loss, on grief. Um, It is observational and objective. And it's told primarily through a string of individuals. We meet Bruce Stern's character first. his, da- his granddaughter wants everything he has to be appraised. So when he kicks the bucket, we know the value of what he has and what she might want. Um, there's a John Ortiz has a wonderful role as the insurance, as the insurance man. Uh, and he meets with Dern's character initially. Has an entirely uh, a look all of its own on those uh, sequences Then we meet the granddaughter played by Amber Tamblyn. Total contrast to her grandfather. Then we segue into a woman whose house is burned to the ground, played by Ellen Burstyn. And the the exchanges between Burstyn and John Ortiz are the stuff that award-winning performances are made of. Absolutely brilliant, touching, beautiful. But the entire film proceeds in this fashion with the highlight becoming Ellen Burstyn and John Hamm. John Hamm as a a collectibles uh, dealer in Las Vegas. And she has one item that she managed to salvage out out of her burning home that she had no clue as to what the value was, is, but it was something that meant, that meant a lot to her husband. So anybody that has ever experience loss, grief, this is, nostalgia is the film for you. Um, it really gives you a deeper understanding and perspective on the value, the value of life, the value of legacy. Um, it, it's one, prob- possibly my, my favorite film that Mark has done. 
uh, and I am a huge a huge admirer of his work um, because they do all of his films speak to life, especially the last grouping of films. Henry Poole is here. I melt with you. The last word, and now nostalgia. Uh, he explores mortality. He explores memories. He explores life. He asks the tough questions um, about defining a legacy. And it all really comes to fruition with this particular film, with nostalgia. So uh, I can't encourage you all enough. The film is playing in, I believe, 75 different cities, maybe only one or two theaters in each city. Um, but it is a film that you will be so glad that you that you have seen. It's playing in Los Angeles, uh, and I don't have the complete list of cities, but you can, of course, Google it uh, so and check it out for yourself. But you're going to have to hear our in-depth interview. And as I said, it's very candid. And going through and editing and taking out some of the language that Mark and I used <laughs> was a challenge, <laughs> to say the least. But... That'll be coming up at the half hour mark. But in the meantime, I do believe I have the wonderful Jeffrey S.S. Johnson on the line. Wonderful. That, that's a nice word to lead with. I appreciate that. Oh, Jeffrey, you are wonderful. I have admired your work going all the way back to Helter Skelter when you played Terry Melcher. Oh, my God. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, I, I was just thinking that not too long ago. That was, that was a fun experience, uh, yeah, working with Jeremy Davies was fantastic. Uh, I mean, I and you are such a familiar face and familiar voice to so many, thanks to your T-Mobile commercials. Um, but, oh, right, 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 yeah. But all of the the police procedurals that you did for a few years there, you were hitting them all. You hit CSI, you had Burnout, Criminal Minds, Bones. Um, then yeah, you, yeah, it's funny. I think, like, guys of a, a certain type, they the shows. And, and they, they, they can be an awful lot of fun. Oh, and, and you know, and I have enjoyed watching you in all of them. I mean, you even had a role in Terminator Genesis, which many people didn't like that film. I personally liked where that film went. Um, you, you know what? Between me, you, and The Lamppost, I still haven't seen it. I, uh, it was a voiceover thing that I did in that, <laughs> and I still haven't gotten around to watching it yet. You know, you should. It is not what so many people described it as it really is an exceedingly well done film with excellent production values and i really like where the story goes so if you ever get a chance to, oh, cool. to listen to your own work yeah. I, I can't recommend it highly yeah, I, enough. I would like to. <laughs> but in the meantime i am so excited i owe your publicist i owe mark a huge 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 thank you for reaching out to me about your new film, Captain Black. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. Jeffrey, what Mike is, this is the guy that every woman in the world wants. This is the guy you want as your friend. One of the nicest characters we have seen on screen in a long time. And then, then he gets thrown into this weird world. It's, it's really sad in a sense. But I just... Where did, and, you know, you're directing, wrote, directed your first feature, directing, and yep, you're, yep, you're, and you're yep. starring and directing yourself, um, which we'll get into That's shortly. Right. Which we'll, right. we'll get into shortly. But where did, because you've had a steady career, 
but now you decided to make the leap into directing. What was the impetus for doing that? Well, the, you know, I, I, wrote, I wrote the script, and, and I'm not a, a great writer by trade. I don't have much of a discipline, so I just, but I got these ideas, and, and I, I thought it'd be a good thing to make, and since I self-financed it, I'm like, no one's ever going to hire me to, to direct a feature, so I'll just hire myself. So <laughs> I, kinda, I cheated a little bit, <laughs> bought myself a credit. Hey, why not? Man's got to do what a man's yeah, got to do. I wanted to. Yeah, because it was very close to the heart, and and and, um, and, and I knew that I, I pretty much knew how I wanted things to go, and I spent enough time on set to know that I could direct if if I had the right team, mm-hmm. and I got a great team, so it was a lot of fun. Where where did you get the idea for this story? Because it, when I first started watching the story, I was kind of getting a vibe of the old Woody Harrelson movie Defendor, um, where he thinks he's a superhero. Oh yeah. Uh, but then it takes a t- yeah. That's initially that's what I'm thinking. It's like okay, it's along the same vein, but then it takes a total twist. So this is a story that is not in the mainstream. So I'm curious what no, you know, not at all. How your fertile little mind came up with this? You know, it's uh, a lot of it. You know, at the like the front end is just kind of slice of life, fun little scenes that that were easy enough to connect with. Uh, but then I just. I just thought, what if, you know, that, that's more or less it. I'm like, what if this nice guy got thrown into this really scary situation? And, uh, and then, you know, the, you just keep on writing more. It's like, oh, if this happens, then this has to happen. If this happens, then that has to happen. So it was just a, a strictly a what-if scenario. Well, and your what-if scenario, you start off, we're in, we're in this Mexican restaurant that you're manager of, and, of course, we first meet the jerk of a customer, played by Mackenzie Aston, and he does jerk yeah, so yeah. well. And this is... Some, I know, it's funny, and he's the nicest guy in the world, too, which is funny. You know, it's like everybody on the planet has either, if, you've been, if you're in entertainment, you're, and you've been a server, was a server, or you've been in restaurants watching this unfold. Boy, he nailed, you nailed it spot on with the, with the dialogue. He nailed it with the performance. Um, yeah, yeah. And this really... Uh, yeah, I think, well, yeah, we, we've all seen that jerk at some point. Yeah, if we weren't waiting on him, we were sitting next to him saying, what is with this guy? And then he's getting his meal comp saying he's never coming back again and then says, hey, you should be giving me coupons to come back. And it's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the humor that you inject there and with your take on Mike as the manager dealing with these people. It's, I can honestly say I don't think I've ever seen a manager anywhere with that kind of calm and gracious hospitality. Oh, that's funny. You know, it's it's funny you bring that up too because I'm I'm in Washington D.C. right now. We we had our world premiere uh, a couple nights ago, and, and I'm heading back to Los Angeles later on today. But my dear friend Dan, who I, I um, used to work with at restaurants, you know, he, he was kind of he he was kind of the basis of, of that character. Like he was just a really nice guy, and he was really polite, and and, and walked the company line as much as he could. So he was able to see this see the, the film, which was really really cool. And uh, yeah, but I mean, it's just you fall in love with Mike at that moment, in that situation. You this is where yeah, you got to. You really set the tone, and then when we see him stumble onto the briefcase with comic books in it, a comic book of Captain Black, and all of a mm-hmm. sudden, this guy, you know, midlife, he's getting drawn into the graphic novel world and the and the dream world. And, yep, yeah, and a little you, obsessed. Li- I, little obsessed? Okay. 
A <laughs> <laughs> little obsessed? If you were a kid getting an allowance, you'd be spending every every allowance in the comic book store. Right, right, exactly, exactly. But you, um, yeah, I mean, that's a world that I personally don't know that much about. But the more you you, you do a deep dive in those things, the more fascinating they are. So, how did you develop the character, the graphic novel character of Captain Black, and the object of his affection, Kit Vixen? Well, um, yes. Well, I I wrote them not knowing what they were going to look like, mm-hmm. so. I knew he was going to be dark and mysterious. I knew she'd be sexy and, and, and cat-like. Um, and then I met with a, an extremely talented uh, comic book artist, uh, Sean Spanky Piela, and we sat down and just, you know, we just brainstormed and we had beers. And, and next thing you know, he's sketching and we're saying yes here, no there. Next thing you know, we've got this fully realized concept, and it was it was fun to just see it bloom. It was like it's like Spanky and I were their parents. Oh, my God. It had to feel that way. And to see them not only come to fruition on a comic book page, and I have to say, you've got animation in this film. You have the actual graphic novel, the vibrant colors, uh, you know, of turning the pages, which is all beautiful. But then you have a character that you then translate into human form as Mike creates his own Captain Black costume. And starts living that alter ego identity, and yeah, yeah, which is funny too. He's not exactly a costume designer, so he 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 does things with duct tapes and and safety pins. Look, there is nothing in the world you can't do without with that you can't do with duct tape. That you can do anything with duct. That's right, duct tape and a hammer. That's all you need. That that and you know the costume is very cool, but then in Mike's fantasy. Then we see the really puffed out, padded, muscle bound yeah. costume with beautiful embroidery and satin fabric, and you go, yeah, you really yeah, take this. My, my friend uh, Lisa Fullerton is a, is a costume designer, and she was kind enough and in between gigs, and she had time to put one together for me. She did such a good job; it's such a cool outfit. It's beautiful. It really is beautifully done. The first and the striking thing is the silver embroidery of the bee on the front. Mm-hmm. That, that really yeah. struck me immediately when, with the first... Yeah, that's cool. I think Lisa had just... She had just finished working on Aquaman in, in, in wardrobes when she had time to do our little movie, which was really nice. You know, and to see you take this from a character on the page to a character in real, to a character in real life to... A, a dreamlike carrot take on it. That's a real treat to get to see that process. You know. Yeah. Uh, you know. Yeah. I'm curious. Did you, it, when you were writing and you were planning this film out, did you real? Did you see that development in those early stages? Well, I knew that you know. I knew there'd be the characters because they were written. It just I wasn't exactly sure what they looked like. I knew there'd be a fantasy sequence. Um, and it's funny too because I wanted that to be uh, silly, and, and people are like, well, "You know, what do you mean? You, you, you're going to be on a motorcycle and the wheels aren't moving?" And I'm like, "Yeah, that's the whole point. It's a dream." Um, so, so I, I just saw some silliness, some fun, almost like a Naked Gun type vibe for that mm-hmm. sequence, and uh, it came together real nice. And it fits with the with the with Mike and Mike's persona because he's experienced the experiencing the fun of graphic novels and comics for the first time. 
which he should have experienced back when he was 12 or 13 and would have been daydreaming this kind of stuff. So yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I really love that you went there with the more middle-aged yeah, character. Yeah, and his, his, uh, and his interest was a very adult interest in it as well, like as, as opposed to if he was reading when he was eight years old. Mm-hmm. You know, what, as you were, as you were, you know, did you storyboard this out? Did you shot list this out? How did you go about, from a directorial standpoint, of bringing the printed page to life? Because you've got some beautiful cinematography happening here, you know, great, oh, yeah. e- great effects. Oh my God, Steve Moses' cinematography is beautiful. Your col- use of color, isn't it? It is. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, just, and then Tim Snell's editing. You know, and yeah. he, he comes yeah. out of a strong television background early on in his career. Yeah. So he yep. really yep. knows. Yeah, he had a lot of TV, and and Steve Moses had a lot of uh, commercial stuff. And Steve was really eager to do some more features, and and he was available. And and the the, 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 the what's nice about those guys and about pretty much everyone is that they were really just uh, earnest and honest and excited, and it wasn't just a gig. We all cared about what we were doing. So I think that really comes through. I mean, you can see these guys really wanted to do a good job. Tim Snell was so invested as an editor. I mean, and you can tell with the way things are yeah, cut, I think so too. with the shots that are selected for the edits, with the time that's spent holding certain shots. This it, yeah, he put yeah, thought yeah. into this. It was not just a cut and run situation right and and um we we didn't start editing until well after the shoot too so it wasn't as if tim and steve could talk that much mm-hmm. but um pretty early in the editing process tim said to me you know what i'm really picking up on on your, your dp's vision here and i'm like that's great that's beautiful and i told steve that he was thrilled he said he said he was really touched that he uh that those guys were communicating from afar you know how did you go about approaching the direction uh, and especially working with Steve to develop your visual tonal bandwidth, which, as I said, is beautiful. Your Halloween party scene is the the production yeah. design there. That's so well done. The contrast with Captain Black and Kid Vixen meeting up in the garage. Total contrast right, there right, right. with the blue lighting. Well, yeah, you give and, us... and again, yeah, yeah. That's when, when when you get when you get a great a great DP with a great. Um, Art department, like our production designer Roy Reed, was excellent. I mean, just he could make miracles happen all the time. <laughs> you, you put all these guys together, and, and all of a sudden, you had an all-star team. And yeah, it, it, from from costumes to to art department to photography, it, it, it was really great. And then the cast was just insanely great. So it's, it's just a great, great team effort. I got to say, I really—it's the first time I think I've seen Lenora Washington, who plays. You oh, know, no kidding. I, I think so. I think it's the first time I've seen her. And she really knocked it out of the park for me. And your, oh, chem- yeah. and your yeah. chemistry with her really plays so well as two extremely caring friends. Um, oh, yeah. Very yeah. Well, I impressed. I wrote that part with her in mind. I, I was really hoping that she was going to be available. And I bet you, you've seen her, I bet, but, I, but here's the deal. You probably don't recognize her because she wears a different wig in everything she does. <laughs> She gives her she gives her names. It's hysterical. That's probably it. Because but she just the two, yeah, the chemistry. She works quite a bit. She's so good. The chemistry between the two of you is is a very strong selling point for your for the plot. Points. I think so too. And, you know it really. Yeah. And it, it's funny because 
that's where that's where some of the some of the uh, editing process breaks my heart because because like we had other longer scenes with the two of us that just had to go in the interest of time. Mm-hmm. But her work is so good, and I thought the connection was so good. You know, and then you bring in Georgia Norman to play Kit Fixin. Um, yeah, that was an interesting, interesting little role. There was it hard to find the right person for that role. It it wasn't so hard because I met her pretty early in the audition process, and I knew right away that she was just the best. Um, but uh, but it was it was very important that I didn't cast someone I knew. Like a lot of the cast, like people like Charlie Coots and, mm-hmm. and Lenara, and they're, they're they're friends, and from the party scene, I've known. But I didn't want to know the Maria Kit character. I wanted sure. that to be a stranger, and. Uh, and we, we had to find someone who could, who could play that age range mm-hmm. uh, convincingly on both sides. Mm-hmm. But she's terrific. And I like, to, I like to think of her as a find. I like to think of her as she'll be a big thing and that'll help the film because I think she's just terrific. She's got a look. A look that we, oh, don't, yeah. that we don't see. She's got that porcelain, porcelain skin and the jet black hair. And then you make sure she's got, you know, the, the bright red, Maybelline red, Max Factor Red Hollywood <laughs> lipstick, and it, yeah, very filmed wash. Yeah, I think so too. And then she's a gamer too, you know. I mean, like, cause like that's 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 a tough role for her to take. I mean, I can understand her not not to want to do something that risky, but but she jumped right in, and we had a blast. I remember at one point we were doing a motorcycle scene, and she just said to me, "I'm having so much fun." It was really, really cool. <laughs> Doesn't it make you feel good as a director, though? Oh yeah, big time. Big time. I mean, and, what, and, you know, this is my first time directing a feature, so I wasn't sure if I'd be any good at it, but uh, we all we all seem to enjoy it. We like the way it came out. So, you know, what was the learning curve like for you? You've watched enough th- enough directors at work, but what was the learning curve like for you now stepping into those shoes? You, look, you, do, you learn really, really quick that it's it's a, a, a team sport, first and foremost, and, and so I deferred to other people's expertise constantly. I, I said, you know, what do you think? What do you think? What's what? What are our options? What's the best? Because um, you know, all, the, all these people have been in the industry forever, they know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. Well, you're no slouch either. I mean, you've been around. <laughs> yeah, for better for worse. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the big question, the pressing question, though, you know, you're not only are you a first-time feature director, but you're directing yourself. So I'd love to know how well did Jeffrey the actor take direction and how and you know what did Jeffrey the actor think of Jeffrey the director Oh uh well you know we had a very clear understanding of one another uh so that that was helpful uh, my big thing is we would talk to my first AD Ben Bywater and Steve Moses and we'd just say okay here's Here's what we're going to do. Here's the, here's the setup. And if I felt it emotionally, and if I was cool enough with what was going on, and it was good for camera, then I didn't want to pour over things forever. I didn't want mm-hmm. I didn't want to be the guy who was watching my own takes over and over and over again, wasting everyone's time. So if I felt it emotionally and they liked the way it looked, then we go. We just move right on. Oh, good. That's a very expeditious, very pragmatic way to approach it. No, I didn't. I didn't want to waste everyone's time. I'm like, that's good enough. We got it. Let's go. <laughs> you know, I'd be remiss not to bring up um, how tongue in cheek some of your some of the dialogue is during the Halloween party scene, and I have to say your transition oh, yeah. your transition going from the showing the passage of time 
Halloween, then Thanksgiving, and then Christmas. Really beautifully done, simple imagery, but you, you give us all we need to know about, you know, time passing. But I, the dialogue, okay, you equate the Beatles to Peppers. Okay, Sergeant Pepper. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> Yoko Ono is the stuff in between. Uh, That's right, yeah. Actually, that was an ad-lib. Oh, my God. Church. But, yeah, it was, uh, that, that whole party scene is just probably things that I had written down on pieces of paper over the years that I thought were funny, and, and they'd, they'd land someplace, you know, they out of context, but still interesting. Yeah, it, it was. But, you know, when you're listening to the dialogue and you pick up on those things and it's so entertaining because it's still so much in the zeitgeist and it has been for so long. Or you even play, you know, you make fun of you got the guy who's dressed up as the guy who does the commercials. So that's right. That's right. That's right. Exactly. So you even kind of Again, poke yeah, fun at yourself. Explicitly for Jameson Reeves. I mean, just just so well done. So that even when oh, that's great. even when the film takes a darker turn and the way that you resolve the film, it's open to interpretation. Oh yeah. Oh, it's yeah. very open and, to and, and we've all gone through the ride together. Like the the audience goes through what he's going through all at the same time and that that's important. You know, I mean that when you cut to black because you cut to black, you don't fade. You cut to black, <laughs> and and it could be, it could be what could be happening next could be the result of Mike slipping into his Captain Black alter ego and defending somebody's honor, or it could be mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. horrible that had happened. But it's left yeah, to our yeah. own interpretation as to where. You know, what happens to Mike and what happens to Captain Black? Absolutely. You know, like in, in the, throughout this whole thing, I've always said that I'm, I'm much more interested in questions than answers. So, so yeah, it, it might drive some people crazy, but, but that's the ending I wanted. Oh, I mean, I just, I, it just works on every level, Jeff. I mean, it, it really oh, cool. does. Thank you very much. It's nice of you to say. You know, and I'm so thrilled. Everybody, everybody in L.A. gets a chance to see this Wednesday at 7 o'clock. At the Regal down at LA Correct. Live. Tickets are still available yes, yeah, because I the... checked. <laughs> oh, they are. Well, that's, that's, I don't want them to be out. I hope we sell out. Well, it's still early. You know, it's a holiday weekend, so people are home goofing off today so that they can now go online and order tickets. There you go. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And that'll be great because that, that's the Hollywood Real Festival. So the screening, like you said, is on Wednesday. And then Friday, I, I'm, I'm very honored to have uh, been awarded the Best Director Prize for that festival. So there will be a little gala event for that as well. And I have to say, a very well-deserved accolade, Jeff. Oh, I mean, really. Fun. Thank you very much. Uh, very nice. Jeff, I thank you so much for calling into the show today. This, is, this has been a real... My pleasure. Thank is, you for having me. This has been a joy getting to talk to you. After watching you for so many years, and now you really, you know... You've now bumped up your your visibility, your Q factor, um, and I hope you're going to direct some more. I really do. Oh, that's the plan, man. I, I, I want to too. This was too much fun to just to do it once. Oh uh, well, who knows? Maybe I'll actually make it down and see this on the big screen Wednesday night. Well, be sure to introduce yourself if you do. If I do, I will. Jeffrey, thank okay, you excellent. so much. Thank, thank you, Debbie. Have a great day now. You too. Bye bye. 
And that was Jeffrey Johnson, writer, director, and star of Captain Black. And now we're going to jump, because I already did the setup for the film Nostalgia, we are going to jump right into uh, our exclusive sit-down interview with director Mark Pellington talking Nostalgia. Because spoke to you. It spoke to me, and plus the characters in there. We have stuff that are very mercenary. How much is it worth? How much is a dollar? How much is a dollar worth? Sure. Which is my sister. It's like if it's not worth a ton of money, it's worthless. It's garbage. Right. It's crap. You just throw it away. What is the value of anything? What is the value of anything? I'm watching this film, Mark, and just... Hit you like a baseball bat. It sure did. Family... Loss, identity, I want this. Somebody said, yeah, here's an interesting... Somebody said, Amber Tamlin's character, she doesn't make sense because she says this, but then she says this. And I said, number one, she's the granddaughter, and yes, yeah, she's having a child, and she, yes, she's angry, yet she's pained, and she wants something, but she doesn't want something physical. She wants... To be acknowledged, she wants to be known that she means something. And that's giving somebody, that's giving somebody respect. All those layers that were in Alex's script, I didn't I didn't touch. I I barely had the difference between the assembly of this movie and what finished. Mm-hmm. Very, very, very pure. Very mm-hmm. it's like maybe the burst in scene at the at the site. There's a longer... I mean, Alex's stuff can be repetitive, and there's a certain power in that. Mm-hmm. But a couple of places, like my first cut was like 2.40. It played interestingly at two hours and 30 minutes. But Bleakersty was like, no way. But I had a... Contractually, I could get up to 2.10. And we submitted a cut of 2.07 to Can. We didn't get in. Mm-hmm. When I knew we were going to be like a festival darling, I was like, how does it play... And the difference between 207 and the 150 that it's now was um, what I got was it was just took a little bit long for people to get to Burston. Mm-hmm. As interesting as Bruce is and John Ortiz is a character actor, people felt they were treading water. The movie didn't begin until Burston got there. Mm-hmm. So I took 10 minutes out from frame one to get to her. Mm-hmm. You probably don't miss any of it. Do you know what I mean? Just I mean, I would have liked to have seen more with Bruce's character and Amber's character. Well, I can send you the longer oh, version. Oh, I would love to see it. Because it's, like about three, it's about three minutes on each one. Yeah, I would love to see that because I felt like there was, a, there was more. More to this need. More to this need and this demand of hers. But, well, what's he giving me? She went a long way. She just got crankier and bitchier yeah and she definitely pushed the limits of but just she was kind of saying the same thing in several ways it was a nice little side thing before she came in the room about well do you know how many grandparents that live with their they want to do a longer thing chris marquette her husband had a little exchange of like 45 seconds mm-hmm. it was just um it was the only battle i got into with bleaker <laughs> the only one Wow. And like they were releasing it and I and I watched it and I went away. You know when you're watching a film like this and you and you like can't touch it. And I went away for a month. This was like June. 
And I came back and I watched it fresh. And that was always the thing. And I was kind of like fidgeting. I loved all the stuff. But like the editor and my producer, like they were a little bit like, mm, that's, you know, a little, just a little bit, mm. a little bit. But that's why you're the purest and you could watch the, the two hour and 45 minute cut. I want to. I want to. With no music. It's really interesting. That, and see, that's something that amazed me about this one, Mark. Yeah. Because you, you're known for music. Yeah, and too much music I'm, I get criticized for. Well, I don't I think to, there's ever too much. Well, you know what I mean. But. Very little. I didn't want to... That's why... I got to tell you, I, I'll be honest with you, because I feel like you're not only a critic, but you're also a friend, or you get my work. When somebody comes out and was just like bashing this movie for being sentimental, I was like, I got to disagree with you on this one. I mean, I, I hired Alex Ross Perry to do this consciously... I wrote him a note last night. There was a review that wailed on the line in the middle where Ellen Burstyn does her little voiceover thing. Mm -hmm. That was something I wrote. And Alex had seen the movie. If Alex had said, like, oh, the line, what do we hold in our hands versus what do we hold in our hearts? I just left an interview that George um, had ABC. Oh, George Pinocchio. George goes, can I tell you what my favorite line in the movie was? What we, like, literally, the line that some other critic hated. And I said to Alex, I said, I'm really, you didn't write the line. I did. I almost was going to take it out. Ellen Burstyn loved it. So I kept it in. And it did kind of sum it up. I have to for, tell you, it's my favorite line. Right, exactly, for real people. Now, the people that are like, ugh, I can't. Now, I don't understand them. I don't understand the... Somebody must be heartless. Heartless, who's never lost anybody, who's so shut down emotionally to to be that way about it. I'm just really... Because I consciously was like, yeah, Henry Poole was sweet, and it was sentimental. It was very yeah. sentimental. Yes. And it was very sad, and I did prop up some places where dramatically it was a little... Uh, with some montage. Right. First one, in retrospect, Yes. This one, I was like, no way. Less music, less score. I, I, I treacly. I come with those treacly. But, you know, but the beauty of the less score, what you do here, that is something else I don't, that you haven't really done before. Everybody gets these great monologues. They're songs. They truly are. There's, there's a great lyricism to this whole film, Mark. What you and Art, your editor, what you guys have done, it's very, there's a great lyricism to the ebb and flow of this, and it stems from the dialogue and the cadence and pattern of delivery that you're getting. And Alex has a very specific rhythm. It's a a little unrealistic. It's very, it's intellectual, it's philosophical. It unfolds from scene to scene, like songs that it's not plot driven it's like there's no cause and effect there's one event her death do you know what I mean which there's there's no plot it's like everything that movies Hollywood movies Mm -hmm. are not it's slow it's extremely honest and it's putting it's feelings out there yeah speak to terrified people like just overtly here it is raw it's very raw but it's very objective that's what I think, too. It's very objective. 
And it lets the audience, what you let the audience do is observe. This is a very, you know, the characters observe, we observe, and it's done with objectivity so that we can formulate our own opinions on the value of what we leave and what we have. There you go. You know what movie influenced me the most was um, Amour. Oh. Now, I love Michael Haneke. Like, I, I don't care what, I just, and I... And that movie, I was like, so simple. I said, can I make a movie? Can I make a movie that simple? It's not engineered. And there was a scene in the last word near the end of the movie with Shirley and Philip Baker Hall. It's like the last scene uh-huh. of them. There was just the two of them talking. I said, can I make a whole movie like this? Could I make a really simple, can the characters sit there? Can they just talk and... So funny, the little promo things and Baker Street, I, I disagree with them marketing-wise. I'm going to put out, I've got seven songs. They're each of the long monologues, mm-hmm. right? Just by themselves. And it cuts to nostalgia. And it's just that piece. Like, certainly long. The only person who doesn't really have one, actually really have one, is Ham. His short one where he talks about the wife leaving. Yeah. But it wasn't about the larger... The, the, big, the bigger picture, yeah. Yeah. And Dern, Dern did one, but I'll be honest with you, he was all over the place. It was hard to get one that I could keep, that I could edit mm-hmm. together. He was a little bit all over the place. Sweet guy, but, you know, I mean, he had to do that. Yeah, aren't I... Ch- he had done a film called Medea that I really liked. And I just... He was from Germany. He looks like an American kid from Hermosa Beach, but, like... It just had a different, he had a different rhythm to him. I said, just, just like, let's just, we're in no rush. You know what I mean? And he just, I love the way he cut it. I love the way it. I, it is beautifully cut. Yeah. And again, and a lot of that comes from what you and Matt did. Yeah. And I'm so thrilled you bumped Matt up to cinematographer. Damn right. DP. Finally, finally. First oh, one. He had earned it. I just drove Matt crazy for three days. <laughs> to this Imagine Dragons video. It's yeah. this like incredibly beautiful eight-minute short film video. Mm-hmm. And Matt shot that. Matt just gets me. Like Matt, I don't even have to I'm really proud of his work on this. It's 18 days, a million bucks. I mean, this is you know? this it's pretty lean. This is so beautifully done. I mean, you have you. I love what you do. You let the camera rest. It's not like what we saw in I Melt with you. It's, it's the opposite, right? Very much the opposite. It's not even like what we saw in the last word. Here, the camera rests. And the fact that you start each story with a wider frame. So we see, when we meet Bruce Stern's character initially, when John Ortiz comes in, who I think is just fabulous as, the, as the thread. Love him, right? And he writes and the, sympath- the sympathetic ear that he lends. Yeah, yeah. The kindness that he Empathy. shows. It's beautiful, but you start with the wider. So we see a picture of what Dern's house, what he's sitting in. And then slowly, as they develop a, a somewhat of a relationship, the camera comes in closer, but never for an extreme close-up. Mm-mm. We always, everything, the artifacts are always there. Present, yep. And you've got a beautiful golden tone that surrounds... Bruce's scenes, mm-hmm. which so metaphoric for the sunset of his life. Totally, yeah. 
I mean, just so well. He's comfortable in his warmth, surrounded by, as he says, it's my home, and I like it. Yeah, so you've got the gold, and you've got the darker woods and the mustiness. But but that golden tone, the whole metaphor of the sunset of his life. And then you go to this wide frame of of ash. Of ash. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, we get past, you know, we have the contrast with amber. Sure, yeah, modern, star money, cold. Yes. But then when we get to the segment with Ellen Burstyn's character, wide shot. Cooler, cooler temperatures. It's got the the, the blue, the blueness to it yeah. that go that feeds off the char from what was the house, and then you beautifully sl- said. And then you slowly bring the camera in again, and it oh the closest it comes it comes is to a two shot with her and John Ortiz as she's holding up the, the holder that the baseball used mm. to be on. But it's you never. So we Get we can we, can we are reminded of this loss, this great loss. Yeah, you always want to keep the space. One of my favorite scenes is actually the scene after it in the kitchen with all those great character actors. Yes. And then his Ortiz's song. You know, I see these things. I never enjoy this, having to hear these stories, but it never gets old. Yeah. You know, it's just like in a way he's. In a way, is like a little bit of... I kept on thinking of the Bruno Gans character in Wings of Desire. Oh, yes. Do you know what I mean? Like, he's not death, but he's just like... He's the observer. Mm-hmm. All he does is see loss every day. Yeah. So when he went out, originally scripted, it was like, I want him to just come out and take a picture. So John, come out. And he had the idea, he goes, what if I just open the door? Like, I revisit we tried it and I really loved it I had a very like it's a little playful do you know where he goes and just looks around and the lives lived and that's why the movie could take those it's getting into like what I've done on a few longer form music video things where just starting to make movies that I for me they're like yeah, let him it's kind of a fantasy it's a little bit he takes the picture he says lives lived just still in the reality but like let's take some leaps of fancy and if there's voiceover in it there's voiceover and even in the in-between textures Mm -hmm. instead of the blackouts they're connected to what she says at the end with love and really what they are are if you for me with grief and healing that we started with Henry Poole right and then went to uh, um, I Melt With You Mm -hmm. like whoa Relapse, alcoholism, relapse, and come back out through that. Okay, let's deal with with the last word and get through nostalgia. And the very end is a squinting at the keyhole, and through that keyhole of light and color and analog, and it sounds like a record player, but it's like a dream. The remainder, you know, of trauma mm-hmm. of really sucking someone through thirteen years of trauma or a womb Mm -hmm. to be reborn literally that's what that stuff means Mm -hmm. so she can say to go through and and, and to get and she said and to get home like love is home love is going through that journey because the original term nostalgia was coined by 
And you'd be the only person who would write this, the, the truth of that end image. Like the 1600s, 1600s, the Swiss soldiers, the doctors coined nostalgia, longing for home. The Greek phrase, nostos, nostal longing for home. The soldiers were PTSD. They would come home like they would need to go home. So they were diagnosed with nostalgia, which is really an illness. Mm -hmm. So the Portuguese, Sode and Sodachi, is related to it and that it's something you suffer. It's a desire to be somewhere else other than here. I can't be here. This world is fucked up. Mm -hmm. I don't like it in the present. I want to be in the past. I just want to be anywhere but here. So these things make me feel... Yet the irony is, all that Catherine Keener has... Okay, that picture, sure, they have other stuff in the house, but that keychain, mm -hmm. that keychain was the last thing she held. That keychain was the last... I don't know if you have the last item. Your father or mother... Are they both dead? Or They're both gone. Okay. If you had the last item that they held, that thing. I have the last phone message from each of them. Written down? I have the audio. So do I. I have the last phone message last. From, from my wife in the hospital telling me she loves me, and I played it at her fucking funeral. I listened to it for years. Now I haven't listened to it in five years. Absolutely. Those, those are the things that matter. Those are the things, you know, and I have some, like, I know I wasn't with my dad at the time he died. I got there just before he passed, so I wasn't in the house with him. But I know exactly, based on where he had it on his nightstand next to his bed, that his coin purse was, he was playing with his coin purse. You know, the... the I know exactly, the, the little rubber one. Yeah, and it, was, it was one I bought him and Elton John, one that I bought from the Million Dollar Piano Tour, and I actually slipped it into his pocket before... In the, before in the, on the, in the viewing. In the viewing, so yeah, it got yeah, yeah. buried with him. Right on. And with my mother, a necklace that I... The last present I gave her, a Christmas present, before she passed away in the spring. Yeah, that's why the opening scene, you probably knew right out of the... That was a big discovery for us. Was, oh. the, was Art and I, we had the take of like 135 mil. And he cut the scene conventionally. I just said, do me a favor, just, just start. It's out of focus. It'll be out of focus. For like, just, let's just only play on the single of the mm -hmm. bracelet. Well, the necklace. And, I, and the necklace. Yeah, yeah. Because I knew it came up to that face and that girl's face and hearing him off camera. And he said, do you know when it's... And said, do you know... Uh, yeah, my grandmother passed it on to me. That girl's face was just incredible, right? The joy, the love. You know, she loved her grandmother, all that. Hey, when do you do? Oh, don't know. And John Ortiz's uh, mystery. Yeah, and then you see the girl's face change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right? So that's what it is, you know, these... I explain criticism for me to say... Sylvia's really great. She's like, you know what? You either have experienced it. You and I can talk freely about it. Yeah. You either, you either accept that stuff in your life. Because it's all about your life. Everybody brings their own thing to it, right? That's it. Or not. So we throw stuff away. Because oh, Alex and I was like, God, this would make a great... You can make a TV series nostalgia. Just like... Yeah. That, that, that would fall into it. Yeah. That, stuff. That, that like characters it. would... 
go into it. And that, you know, but, you know, I see all of this unfold in this. I have a very unique perspective with your film. Sure. I always have a unique perspective with your you film sure for some do. reason. You sure It's like do. we're kindred spirits somewhere. Yeah, well, I think we've, we've traveled down some similar paths. We're not... For decades. We've experienced loss. We're yep. of the same generation. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, we, we, we're open emotionally and, like, you just... You see it in family, and you could, like this interview I did before. They said, "Well, have you ever lost something?" Like that's I lost the house in the Jersey Shore, burned down the fire. My father's house in the Bahamas destroyed by a hurricane. Absolutely, yeah. Fires, um, ripped off by robbers, lost people. Yeah, sure. You know, there's some people who have skated by. Yeah. You know, I think that like, you know, it's just like it's just a movie, but. I'm really glad it's out there. I really hope that like it's a little word of mouth and some people find it. They're going to put it in a lot of theaters, I mean, in a few theaters in a lot of cities, mm-hmm. as opposed to just like, well, we're, that's a good thing about them. They're not going to be like, well, we're only going to, they're going to go like 75 markets, only be in one or two theaters, but like, let it, let it yeah. be there. Chip away, chip that's away. That's just it. You know, I did a Q&A, I did a Q&A, Pete um, Hammond put on his his extension class. Mm-hmm. Lights come up, 300 people there. 100 people stay for the Q&A. 90% of them over the age of 40. Yeah. That doesn't... They would sit there and have a great conversation about the things we're talking about. And it's not doesn't mean a 25-year-old can get it, but I just think you have to have worn grief yeah, you have to. You have to have experienced it a little bit. It's like a, it's like a, um, it's like a club or it's like an energy. It's just, it's in there. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And it's it's in Matt. Matt shot the movie. Mm-hmm. His father had just died. It's in Matt. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in it's in Matt. It's in Arndt. It's in the composer Laurent, whose sister had passed away. So everybody had their own. And he used to be a paramedic in France. He would like, go to these crash sites and just see. Yeah. You know, you can't. You don't take that stuff out. No. Like that's what the remainders are. The remainders of trauma. You're forever. That was almost the title of the movie. The, like rema- the remainders. Yeah. I like that. I'm curious. You shot. You shot with anamorphics. Yeah. Yeah. Which is appropriate for this film. Sure. But you used a drone on this one? There's lots of drones, lots of 4K drones. This kid Gabe was able to go 50 feet above the pool, above the dumpster. Um, I just love them. I haven't used a crane in, I haven't used a crane in three years. Wow. Drones are just like by far my favorite tool. We just used them on this Imagine Dragons video beautifully. And one of my favorite shots is at the end Right, right, the last shot in the movie mm-hmm. is actually heading into the swing set. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And um, I just love them. Love drones. I mean, we do the move for a million bucks in 18 days. That just, that... When I showed it to David Fincher, because Dave's an old friend, he knew my wife, and he wrote us a letter to try and get in Cannes, we didn't. And I said, Dave, why don't you make a movie for a million bucks? He goes, I can't. I said, come on, you could. He goes, no, I really, I couldn't. I wouldn't know how, I wouldn't know how to make this. I wouldn't know how to do it. 
You've always done it ever since the beginning of videos. You've always been different than me and different than Romantic and Spike and stuff like that. Just, you know, I don't know how you make stuff look so good for so cheap. We had a colorist who did uh, Jill Bogdanovich is one of the top, you know, Wes Anderson's colorist. We had, a, we had a coloring deal that would have cost on the book a hundred thousand bucks yeah. for 10K. Just favors people. I bring in commercials, but like they're dying to work on this shit. People are dying to work on That's stuff with it. meaning. That's all I can offer. It's I can offer the art. Hey guys, and they'll do it because they, they do this shit three months of stuff. Although she did Altered Carbon and mm -hmm. she had done Ghostbusters and she does Wes Anderson stuff, but like she'll sit there and for five days do some crappy thing. She goes, Oh my god, I'm dying to do these. Because things. this requires to balance, to find, get these fine-tuned edits, to get these Matt's beautiful shots, and of course, you know, when you get into John Hamm in the film, and we have the darker, more, sh you know, shadows that kind of cloak him because of his divorce, and sure. blinders on to things. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I see this, this metaphor visual metaphor yeah. all through the film work yeah, yeah. it's so beautiful well you see you're a smart you're a smart artistic critic and you see the the artistry and the making of it I think some people see plot when I read reviews that are just like basically tell you the whole plot the synopsis of the thing I'm like wow that's not really like I don't want to know that do people want to know exactly what the plot of is a movie I don't I don't want to that would waste it for me I'd rather know what's this roughly what's the story has unfold what is it about what's it feel like mm -hmm. you know you go for that feeling and um, but you know you're you're an exception I could say happily so for for my work I, I want to read some of your reviews that are that are super critical I should read, you should send me some of those yeah well when you don't like something I, I part of me um, I don't know what the word is. I don't throw away, you know, again, I even print out stuff that's in computers, like, oh, there's old treatments and stuff like that. Um, print them out and buy them so I have a physical mm -hmm. record of them. Mm -hmm. I'm pitching a, a memoir for music videos for my experiences in a chronicle from 1983 oh. to now my experiences making videos. So I've saved every treatment, oh my God. all my scrap notes, you know, Polaroids with Flavor Flav. I'm trying to get a book just just to, like, crawl into the history. Oh, that would be cool. Because you know, nobody's really documented it no. as a filmmaker from that period of time. So I have some small publishers. You make no money with it, but, like, yeah. they basically pay for you to do your book. Yeah. And if some people buy it, you get... I'm curious now. What now... Was this cathartic at all for you, now being the, the quartet... As I'm finishing, it is. Yeah, with mortality and memories. And it is, you know, I, but I went back and I went into my room above my, beyond my office at, at home, and there is a private wall there, and I looked at it. I, I didn't start taking stuff down. I just acknowledged it, because there is one movie that is the, 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 the opus, the grandpapa of them all, that if the four form a foundation, yeah. they're all just four poles supporting the larger one, mm -hmm. which I'm currently, I've worked on for 20 years, that Paul Schrader wrote the first draft, but I'm presently 
trying to maybe do it as a TV series, as a five-hour TV series. Mm-hmm. Because the two-and-a-half-hour movie, Come Close Twice, once with Kurt Russell and Aaron Paul, has not taken off. Because I think the story is too much for... If I did it as a movie, it would be a four-hour movie. Mm-hmm. And I would do it cheap. But I'm going to try it as a TV show. I'm going to try and sell it as a six-hour like limited series. It's like the night of... It's a murder mystery. The night of meets um, blow up. If you just throw those two into a blender. It's about my father. And that was Mark Pellington talking about nostalgia. And we missed three pieces of profanity in the edit. Sorry. (laughs) As Pam's making faces. And for those of you, you know, it's in theaters right now. Please see the film. Uh, it is wonderful. Mark Pellington directs Alex Ross Petty, screenwriter, cinematographer Matt Rowe, editor Arndt P. Moeller. Uh, it is a wonderful, wonderful, exquisite film. That's all the time we have today. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens. <laughs>